This week on Raffi Reviews, Raffi Reviews, Young Justice Phantoms. So at the time of recording, uh, Young Justice wrapped up Thursday, which was yesterday, um, and I really thought about kind of putting this off until like the weekend, but I was working on writing up the review, and I had some time, and I just, I really want to talk about Young Justice, because um, it's a show that I like a lot, and it's been on this journey um, that I think is really impacting, and I think it's it's something, <sighs> Young Justice is like this thing that DC and Warner Brothers have been sitting on, and I, I don't think they realize just how golden it is, and how it's it's one of the best things that they're producing right now, and I think it's almost a shame that it isn't getting more attention, and it isn't getting more, I guess, like, more budget put into it. Um, a very, very brief history here is that in, I think, 2010, um, there was this animated show on Cartoon Network called Young Justice, and it was a show based in the DC Universe, it was about the sidekicks of, you know, the big DC superheroes, um, coming together and kind of forming their own superhero team under the banner of the Justice League, but still on their own, kind of a private, covert team of sidekicks. Um, and the show was, you know, successful, obviously, the storytelling was great, um, the whole thing had Greg Wiseman backing it, Greg Wiseman being the person who also created the Spectacular Spider-Man, uh, cartoon, even before then, uh, even further back than that, he created the show Gargoyles, so, Wiseman knows how to, um, create a universe, tell a story, and Young Justice was no exception, and the other thing about the show that I think drew in a lot of attention from, you know, people probably in their, um, in their teens or, or, you know, younger than teens. Young Justice was a show that wasn't just about young superheroes, but it was about young people and the things that they have to deal with and the, the trials and tribulations that they have to face. And, you know, because it's a superhero show that usually comes off as like, well, Aqualad has to punch Black Manta or something, but really what it's about is Aquaman, or Aqualad, I guess is what I should have said, dealing with, like, the fact that Black Manta is father, and how that affects him, how it affects him as a superhero, how it kind of defines where his loyalties should should be, um, and, and there's a lot of that. There are characters who have to constantly... Um, reflect upon their legacy and their family. There are characters that have to come to grips with their own identity and decide what path they want to go on and how it might differ from the path that they started on. You know, Young Justice is a show that definitely grew over time, not just in terms of its characters, but in terms of its its lore, its universe, which is something else I appreciate. As the show has gone on, not only have the main characters grown, but we've seen changes in the supporting cast of characters. We've seen changes in the wider scope of this universe. Like, this is truly a world that is moving, not just by character, but by everything. Time is passing. Um, and I think it's it's incredible, because again, 
no discredit to Greg, Greg Wiseman, you know, when he wrote the Spider-Man show, Spectacular Spider-Man, I, I think that show's timeline was maybe over a year. Um, like, like his plan was to have, like, I think, I think four to six seasons just kind of summarizing Peter Parker's high school um, life from, I think, his, uh, his sophomore year? I can't remember if sophomore is the second one or if, or if junior. I think sophomore is the second one. But, but no, yeah, his, his sophomore year. Like, it was a shorter time frame. Whereas Young Justice, because of time jumps and everything, um, I, I think this universe is like, I want to say, let's see, the first time jump was like five years and then another five. So like 12 years, I guess. Um, and and things just move and it's it's really great. But yeah, so you had season one of Young Justice, which was on television. Season two did a five-year time jump. Um, a lot of things in the show were sort of changed and, you know, further explored in season two. Now, after season two, the show got canceled by the network because it didn't sell enough toys, essentially. But, you know, Greg Wiseman went on record as saying that he had written, like, this entire plan for what this universe looked like um, from start to finish, and he had to just kind of sit on these plans for a while until... Um, I, I have to look up when the, um, the DC streaming service, like, <laughs> first, was first, uh, put up. Um, okay, so it was probably, like, 2019, 2018, yeah, yeah, okay, here we go. DC Universe was launched in, uh, 2018, but it didn't last long, it lasted, like, two years, but within that time span, um... Greg Wiseman and the rest of the Young Justice team got to make a season three to Young Justice, which I think was two two years later in, in the story. And that was Young Justice... Oh, God, what did they call it again? Oh, Young Justice Outsiders, which brought in some new characters. It, you know, further expanded on other characters' arcs and what they were dealing with. And then now we have the show that we're talking about now, Young Justice Phantoms, which... Because the DC Universe streaming app um, had closed down, got moved over to HBO Max. So that's where we are now in the timeline. Um, but yeah, like that, that's why this show is so in, important to me and impactful. Because it's been so good for so long. The storytelling has been great. The characters' portrayals have been great. Like, a, like for me, a lot of what I... Like a lot of like the main versions of characters in my head are kind of like these ones. Like, like, um, like for me, this has my favorite version of Superboy, Connor Kent. And I love Connor Kent. I think he's an awesome character. I even like his weird 90s phase with his leather jacket. But for me, Young Justice really kind of defined what was Connor Kent's traits and what made him an interesting character. Same goes for Miss Martian. Same goes for Aqualad. Like, Aqualad was so was so impactful in this show that they literally changed his character in the comics to be more reflective of uh, this show's version of him. Um, this show also, I don't think it created this character, but it definitely kind of recreated the character of Artemis. Um, that's not to say Artemis from like the Wonder Wonder Woman comics, but like it created this version of Artemis who was just kind of a Green Arrow sidekick, who had way more depth and 
was a way more fleshed out character than I think you know people expect, especially when characters are created originally. Um, but yeah, <laughs> suffice it to say, this show is incredible, and it's like it was it was almost gone forever after season two. It was almost canceled, and we would have never seen it again. And the show had to jump from like being canceled for I think it had to have been like three or four years that it was just gone. And then it was revived on a streaming service. And then when that streaming service died, Young Justice had enough, like, clout and enough, like, fan backing to jump over to season, or to jump over to HBO Max. And, like, there's definitely, like, this is the thing too, right? You can definitely tell the show's budget has gone down. Um, The action scenes are a bit further in between. Even some of the standing and talking scenes don't look as good as they look in, in the earlier seasons. When I'm wa- when I was watching season four, anytime they'd flash back to season one or two, you could tell the budget was way higher. And it even comes down to some action scenes in season four are completely like not shown at all, and instead you get kind of these like still shots of action happening. Um, they also save a lot of budget on mouth movement because the whole like first five episodes of season four. Um, take place on Mars where everyone has telepathy. So you don't need to animate the mouths moving because they're all speaking in their heads. So, you know, that's not to say they're cutting corners because that sounds kind of like a rude thing to say. But they're being smart about where their money is being put. Like, when they do have action scenes, you can tell that's where most of the money is going towards. Um, But what they show at this point with season four kind of lacks in its animation or its, like, fight choreography. I mean, the fights aren't bad, it's just there's less of them. It really makes up for, with its characters and its world building, to a point where, when I was watching season four, sometimes it felt overwhelming how much was being given to us, especially in terms of characters. You have to remember that this show was created on the premise of highlighting sidekicks in DC, in the DC universe. And the problem... I don't want to call it a problem because I like this element of the DCU. The thing with sidekicks in the DC Universe is that they never stop coming up. You know, like, you could tell the complete history of, of Dick Grace and the first Robin. But there's still the guy after him, and the guy after him, and there's Batgirl, and there's, you know, all these other side characters that are also part of the Batman family. And, you know, that's true of a lot of these characters. A lot of people don't know that like, Green Arrow didn't just have a sidekick, he had, like, three of them. And Aqualad, or Aquaman had, like, three sidekicks. So, you know, there's definitely characters that they introduce and they explore, and it kind of feels like they don't get as much as everyone else, but it's only because there's so many characters in the show already. Um, Thankfully, despite this being a DC property, I don't feel like any season of Young Justice has been choked with Batman stuff. Um... Which is probably just another reason that it's it's so consistent and, and well-written, I think. Because <laughs> we're not... And we're not putting too much importance, I think, on the Batman characters either. It's not like, well, Batman's not in the show as much, so we have to make it about Nightwing the whole time. Like, no. There are entire arcs dedicated to Aqualad and, uh, and uh, like, Miss Martian, who hasn't really appeared in anything before this. Um, it was actually weird, because... There was a DC animated movie called Justice League The Fatal Five, which was part of the DC animated universe from, like, the early 2000s. And in that animated movie, I think that came out, like, three years ago, 
Miss Martian is in it, and it feels so weird to see another version of Miss Martian that isn't this show's version because she's just been around for so long now. Um, but like, <laughs> I I have to do this review a little bit differently because this show is is different. Um, ostensibly, I'm going to talk about the arcs of this show because this is the first season to kind of have an arc-based format. Basically, uh, the main characters of the show all get a four to five episode arc that kind of explores what they're doing in their corner of the DC universe. Um, and only at the end do they all kind of come together to like unite against a common enemy. Which I think is smart. I think it's a good way of telling a story. And it's, it's nice, too, because all, for most part, all these arcs have different things going on, but it allows the writers to connect them, like, in the background. And I think that's smart, because it gives everyone time to breathe, time to have their own story. Nobody is taking up more time than anyone else. <sighs> Excuse me. Um, so we'll talk about the arcs, we'll talk about some reoccurring characters, because, like, I, I wrote down the main characters and their voice actors. I wrote down the, re the reoccurring characters... Truth is, there's so many characters in the show that I can't list everybody. I'm gonna go through some notes, and I'll talk about the future of this show because, I <laughs> trust me, when the season when you get to the like end of the last episode, it definitely feels like this might be it. But then they put in a end credit stinger, and it's like, well, now I can't let them just leave, <laughs> um, and I don't want them to either. I think Young Justice is a show with a lot of gas. So, before we really get into the review, I do want to give this show a grading up top for anyone who's interested. Um, this is going to be very different because I haven't reviewed the other seasons of Young Justice on recording. And I understand that not everyone has watched Young Justice. It's not like a movie where you can just go and... It's, it's, it's a commitment. You have four seasons, um, and all of that stuff is on HBO Max, so if you have it... like. I would definitely recommend the show. I think the show is, is terrific. It's amazing. It's been such a journey to follow these characters. And, like, it's just, it's it's one of my favorite shows. It's, it's probably my favorite DC show. Anytime I think about the DC movie universe and all the missed potential of what they could be doing, I think about Young Justice. And I think about the DC animated universe, but mostly I think about Young Justice because it is such a perfect example of what you could do with this universe of characters uh, instead of what they're trying to do, I guess, if they're trying to do anything in those movies. Um, but my grade for this is, if you've seen the rest, watch this show. You, I don't think you could just hop into this. I mean, you could try. You might be a little confused with some of the characters that pop up here and there. Um, but, like, this is a very, like, narrow margin. I think... If you want to if you want to watch the season, you should watch the rest of the show. And I think that if this review, you know, isn't for you, if it doesn't sell you on the show, that's fine. Even up to this point, if if you want to head out, I'll understand if you don't want to listen to the rest of this because you're just not interested in the show. I'm doing this less because I have, you know, hot takes on like the newest property to hit the 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 small screen or the big screen. I'm doing this more because I love Young Justice. It's one of my favorite shows, and I've never really taken the time or the opportunity to sit down and talk about the show. And I know that there's definitely way more than this podcast of of what I could say about it. But 
this is the new season, and I, I want, I'm hoping that there's going to be more, and I just want to celebrate that. And by celebrating the show, I want to just talk about what happened in the new season, and all that good stuff. So, let's get into things. So first, uh, we're going to talk about the arcs. There are six arcs to season uh, four <laughs> of Young Justice. Each arc kind of explores a different corner of the DC universe in terms of, and I, I don't mean like specifically, we're go I mean we are going to different places, but more so elements of this comic book universe. Um, and each arc is also kind of headed by one of the main characters who was on the Young Justice team. So, the first arc, I, I named all these, like, because I don't know if they have actual arcs, like, names, but I, I just named these based on what they're about. The first arc uh, is about Mars. <laughs> it's about Mars, the Martians, and um, and a wedding, basically. Um, this season, or this arc, <laughs> focuses on Connor Kent, a.k.a. Superboy, who is voiced by Nolan North, and Megan Morse, who is Miss Martian, who is voiced by Danica McKellar. Um, these two characters have been, I would say, the heart and soul of Young Justice since the beginning. Um, over the course of the show, you see their relationship, uh, start, you see it end and break apart, you see them reunite, and now in this season, they are finally tying the knot and getting married, and to do so, they have to go to Mars because Miss Martian's a Martian. Um, this arc is great, I I'm not gonna lie to you. Whenever the wedding stuff came up, whenever whenever the stuff with um, Superboy and Miss Martian came up, um, admittedly, I, I teared up a little bit, like, in happiness, because I, I guess the show just means that much to me, but it also helps that, like, I, I got married, <laughs> like, pretty recent to when season four was announced and everything, and so after having my wedding with Macy being able to watch this show and see it start with that, start with these two characters who we've watched grow up and change, and and it's, I don't know, this might be a little too personal, but it's it's kind of reflective, I think, you know. Superboy and Miss Martian met when they were teenagers. Macy and I met when we were teenagers. In season two of the show, Miss Martian and Superboy aren't together. They've broken up, and they're kind of distant, and they're always kind of on the will-they-won't-they they of repatching their relationship. After high school, that's very much where Macy and I were. Um, we were not together, but we we did talk every now and again, and I think both of us were a little apprehensive to get back together um, for our own reasons. And now, you know, with between season three and season four, Superboy and Miss Martian rekindle their relationship and then make the decision to, to get married and, and decide, like, this is what they want. And, of course, you know, I don't know, five years ago, maybe more. Uh, this is sound... Oh, I'm digging a hole here. Point is, you know, not too long ago, Macy and I, like, five years ago, we, we got back together. And we lived together for a long time. Had the apartment, got married, and now we have a house. And, you know... It's reflective, and that's, it, it sounds silly, because I'm comparing it to real life, but it, it wouldn't be the first time that something from comic books and superheroes has meant a lot to me, because it's it's reflected my own life and my own experiences. 
my favorite Ghost Rider is Robbie Reyes because Robbie Reyes has um, has a brother who uh, has a has a disability, and when I was ten, um, my brother Travis, who also had a disability, had passed away. Um, Nightwing as a character means a lot to me because, you know, Batman and Robin meant so much to me growing up with my dad. And once I kind of read and, and, and learned that the first Robin kind of grew out of Batman's shadow and became his own person, I felt validated because as a teenager I was growing a bit further from my dad or at least setting up a, a different idea of the person I was going to be in contrast to my dad. So, with this whole wedding thing, when the season starts and you see Miss Marsh and Supoy in love and, you know, they're having all these these traditions and stuff, it, it got to me. And I think that that's a real quality of the show that has also been overlooked. There's so many elements of this show that speak to people. Definitely with season four, they, they extend themselves out in terms of what kind of stories they want to tell. And I think there's something for everyone in this show and for me, it's definitely that. It's definitely this sort of, not to say like the final note on these two characters, but it's this, it's this milestone for these two people who just love each other. And despite everything that happens around them or happens in their life, they keep coming back to get together because of that love, because it's, it's so real. Um, that being said, we're also on fucking Mars, dude. And that's awesome. There has been no other, like, DC universe where Mars has ever been interesting. And it might be because in this universe, Martian Manhunter isn't the last Martian, which is usually the case. But here, the Martians are all still alive, and they... Oh, it's so good, right? I, I think I talked about this on, on recording before, but... The thing about the Mars arc in Young Justice is that it's not only about Connor and Miss Martian getting married. Like, that's very important. It's definitely the heart and soul, all that stuff. But with Mars, there's this... Oh, it's like... I don't want to say it's so real world, but it's it's very reflective. Because the Martians are these superpowered beings, right? One of them could kill, like, 20 humans or something. If, you know, at, at least. And yet, that kind of divide between people carries over to Mars. Like, just because they're aliens to us, just because they're Martians doesn't mean that they are not, like, they're still affected by things that affect humans as well. You know, like, when Miss Martian comes back, some people see her differently. Because she went to Earth and then came back with her Earth boyfriend, and now they're going to have a wedding. And it's kind of reflective of culture. Like, if you, if you belong to a certain culture, and you leave your home, and you come back with someone from a completely different world, metaphorically or literally you're going to get stares. People are going to talk about you behind your back. It's, you know, for as kind of important and integral as these cultures are, some of them are, are weary to outsiders and they're weary to people who leave their, their place and then come back, you know? So there's that. There's the fact that there are different colored Martians. Like, there are green Martians and there are white Martians. And, again... It's a race. It's it's a race issue with that because Miss Martian herself is is kind of mixed, and that has had a toll on her extended family, on her relationship with her sister and her brother, 
because uh, she has a lot of siblings. And, and like, it's nice, too, because, like, usually with, like, wedding arcs or love arcs, it's, it's usually just about that. It's usually like, okay, how is Miss Mar how is Miss Martian going to deal with being the fiance of Superboy? You know, or or you know, it's it's like it's kind of like when two characters are in love like this, or their arc is based on their love. That's the only focus. Like it takes away from the individuality of the two characters because the whole thing about them is that they're together. But in this arc, you not only get the wedding stuff between the two characters. But Miss Martian has her own stuff going on in terms of her race and her heritage and her family, and how her family relationships are strained because she left Earth, or because, or because you know she's accepted her her nationality as a white Martian. It's all done really well. Um, add to that this bit where some like the Martian kids on Mars, like love superheroes on Earth. Like they actually disguise themselves as, as Earth superheroes because they think they look cool, and because Martians get, like, TV from Earth, basically. And it's really, again, it's really cool, because you see that with culture now, is, like, even in other countries where, again, the rules are a bit more strict, you have people who are fans of superheroes. You have people in countries that hate America who love Captain America. And especially with young people, like, young people will try to emulate not just what they see on TV, I don't think that's completely true, but they'll try to emulate like the cool popular thing that all the other kids are talking about. And if you're a Martian living in this universe and everyone on everyone's talking about all those cool Earth superheroes, you're gonna get invested. You're gonna make yourself look like an Earth superhero because that's what everyone's into now. You know, it's like again, these Martians they can shapeshift into dragons and shit. They could read your mind and make you forget who your mom is. And yet, so many aspects of their society are similar to the human race. And it, I love it because it, it, tears that, it tears down that divide of aliens being that different from one another. It, it tears down the, the, the preface of what being human is. Because it's not being human, it's just being sentient. If you're sentient, if you're alive, if you're part of a society or a culture these things are going to happen, like, regardless. These things are going to happen whether you like it or not. And more of these societal things are reflected later, because we, we check in on the characters uh, called the New Gods on planet... Uh, what's it called? Genesis? We'll talk more about that later. I, I really shouldn't spend too much time on the, these things. But, like, on Genesis, there are the New Gods, who are these beautiful, superpowered beings... And then there are, like, the bugs, the foragers. Like, there are these insects that live, like, on the ground level. And there's a culture divide there as well, because some of these people are strong, and some of these people are bugs. Um, and again, it's everywhere, and it's reflected here on Mars. Um, and it's just it's done so well. Mars, like, there's so much world-building in this show, and Mars, it, it gets the best of it, you know? They establish, like, how how, like, rulership works on Mars. And it's kind of, I guess, like, a, a European thing. Ostensibly, if you're a red Martian, that means you're part of the royal family, which means you will be king one day. And they actually do, like, this really good reinvention of a really obscure character called Jem, the son of Saturn. Um, but in this show, he's a red Martian, and he's, like, the newfound king, and he's he's a fun character. He's nice. Um, but yeah, dude, like, the... <sighs> 
it's so good. And the way the Mars arc kind of ends sets up so much of the potential for the rest of the show because, spoilers, I guess, in the Martian arc, it ends with Superboy seemingly dying, which kind of sets off all these other dominoes for the characters and the events that happen. Um, to cut that down, Superboy didn't die. He ended up in a place called the Phantom Zone, which you might know from, like, Superman movies and stuff. Um, while Superboy's in the Phantom Zone, he meets General Zod, this being General Zod's premiere in Young Justice. And because of the damage that Superboy has sustained, Superboy starts losing memories, and so he sort of joins with General Zod. He becomes General Zod's, like, right-hand guy. Um, and in the end, tries to help General Zod escape the Phantom Zone and get back to Earth. More on that later. <laughs> More of that at 11. Um... I'll try to shock on these as much as I can. The next arc uh, is like the Assassin arc. It focuses on Artemis Croc, who is voiced by Stephanie Lemelin. Um, Artemis has been through the ringer. <laughs> um, her, I don't, I don't think they were ever engaged or anything, but her love interest, Wally West, uh, Kid Flash, had, had died in season two. And, uh, you know, she's still kind of feeling the effects of that. She's trying to move on and, and you know, and, like, it's been enough time that she's trying to move on with someone new. But she's also dealing with uh, her sister, Jade, who is called uh, Cheshire. That's her supervillain name. And, yeah, Jade is an assassin. She's a supervillain. She is constantly, you know, dogging on her sister. It also doesn't help that, again, because the show's been going for so long. J so, <laughs> Jade ended up hooking up with... Green Arrow's sidekick, Roy Harper. Roy, Roy, and, 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 uh, Roy and Jade end up having a kid, but Jade still wants to be an assassin somewhere else, so Roy ends up being the single father, and Artemis is actually the one to help him raise his daughter, Leanne. Um, a lot of the assassin arc is about these family ties um, between Artemis and her sister. Um, it also ties in stuff with a character named um, Cassandra Kane, who in the comics has been a Batgirl. In this show, she's a character called Orphan. Um, she's also, I think she's mute, so a lot of her interactions are done with like sign language and stuff. Actually, she's not, she's not mute. Um, she's just like, I think she's short on sentences. Like, she's not very good at talking because she's never like taught how to talk. Point is, this arc doesn't just focus on uh, Artemis and her sister, it focuses on Orphan and her mother, Lady Shiva, who is an assassin. So a lot of that, a lot of it is assassin stuff, a lot of it is, like, characters who, whose main ability is just being able to fight, but, again, at the core of it, it's these family ties, and it's, like, the crux of the assassin arc is Artemis kind of overcoming all the issues she has with her sister, and just trying to help her sister get better. Um... And by the end, it, it works out. Like, basically, they, they use Jade's daughter as, like, this reason for Jade to get her life together and, like, stop being an assassin, stop killing people, and just, like, become the kind of mother that she never had to her daughter, Leanne. And, again, very good arc. Very good uh, topic of discussion as well. Um, the third arc is where I think the show dips a little bit. It's... It, it's the magical arc, and 
DC has a bad history, I think, when it comes to telling stories about magical characters. This show definitely has it rough because they've never touched on magic, you know, super hard. And this is the first arc that really focuses on magic in Young Justice. And, like, you know, so so it, it's mainly about Zatanna, who is voiced by Lacey, Lacey uh, Chabert, or Chabert, I don't know how to say that. Um, and she's teaching these young up-and-coming magic users um, how to be magical superheroes. And they're also dealing with Clarion the Witch Boy, who's a reoccurring villain in this show. He, he's essentially just a chaos god who disguised himself as, like, a boy. <laughs> he, and, like, look, I will say, because this show is on a streaming service, they're allowed to be as violent as they want. There's this whole bit where Clarion, or a character like Clarion, basically, like, separates this, this security guard into, like, a skeleton, muscles, blood, skin, like, separates everything about him and just scatters it around the room. Like, it, the season gets gory in places. I will not lie to you. Um... But uh, this arc also deals with, like, Clarion having to team up with Zatanna and her students to take down, like, a new Chaos Lord who's put on Earth. And it also ties in Clarion's relationship with Vandal Savage, who's, like, this immortal character that's the main villain of Young Justice. And, like, I don't know. I, I don't know if it was, like, the stuff with Vandal. Because I like, I like Vandal well enough, but so much of this show is kind of on his shoulders and I don't think he's entertaining enough as a character to be the main villain of the show. But the whole thing with the Zatanna arc is, it, it, it left me with a bad taste in my mouth, because it felt like it gone on for too long. It felt like a lot of it was just sort of introducing characters without actually, like, pushing the plot further. Um, I will say it did some interesting things with um, Mary Marvel, who's a member of the Shazam family. And it kind of gave this, like, interesting bit of dirt on Zatanna as a character because part of the reason she does what she does is to get her father back. Her father, whose name is Zatara, was a magical superhero but ultimately had to become Dr. Fate, which essentially means putting on a helmet and becoming like a magic robot. <laughs> like, you don't have your free will anymore. You're doing what the helmet tells you to do. Um, but it was this whole thing, it was this whole concocted plan so that the Helmet of Fate and the role of Dr. Fate could be passed between Zatanna, her students, and her father. But it was all done so that Zatanna could get her father back. So essentially, Zatanna offered up her own students, who she was teaching, as, like, leverage, or at least she, she used them so that she could get her dad back. Which is, like, shitty on her part, but also, like, I, I don't dislike that. Like, it gave me a little less respect for Zatanna as a character. Like, I didn't like her as much after that point was made. But I do appreciate that the show isn't afraid to show kind of the flaws of these characters. And, the, the, like, the flaws can't always be, well, Nightwing's not strong enough to beat a Kryptonian on his own or something. No. Like, the flaws can be stuff like this. The flaws can be these huge, you know selfish but understandable like like it's something that you you get like she's she's this person in her late 20s whose dad is always away and is you know kind of trapped by these magical like commitments and so she wants to do or she feels like she needs to do 
whatever she can to get her dad back. Even if it means, you know, sacrificing up the the futures of, you know, these other young sorcerers. I don't mind that Zatanna made these, you know, questionable decisions. But I think it, it, it worked, I think, in terms of swaying an audience opinion on Zatanna. Um, we had a short intermission, like there was a little <laughs> brief break between episodes. Um, and then we had the Atlantis arc. Now this is, again, another arc that really does world building well. It really defines Atlantis really well, which is really important because Aquaman and Atlantis and all that stuff has never been my bag of chips. Um, but this arc does a great job, and it, it's mostly about politics, which again, politics, not my bag of chips. Uh, not my favorite Star Wars movies. But this arc sets up this idea that Atlantis, you know, much like our country and, and all the countries, Atlantis is this kind of joined community of places. There are all these representatives from the different kingdoms of undersea kingdoms. Damn it. <laughs> there are all these representatives from across the ocean who come together to sort of make this, like, peace treaty, you know, unifying Atlantis thing work, you know? And that's fun, too, because you get cameos from, like, mermaid characters from old Superman books. King Shark is a representative, and he's not, like, the Suicide Squad version of King Shark. He's not like the Harley Quinn version of King Shark. He's his own version of King Shark, and it's done really well. Um, but again, it, this arc focuses on uh, Calderon, uh, a.k.a. the new Aquaman. He used to be Aqualad, but he's since graduated to Aquaman. And he's voiced by Carrie Payton. I love Carrie Payton. He's, he's usually DC animations go-to when voice casting for a black character. Um... Who else has he done? I think he, yeah, I think he, he did, he did Cyborg, and he still does Cyborg to this day, but his version of Aqua Lad, Calderon, whatever, um, is great. He's been this consistent, strong, like, force in the show, and for the most part, Calderon's always been, like, a leader. He's been very serious. He's always been working some sort of, uh, some sort of mission. He went undercover for a couple years when, and, like, they kind of portrayed him as a villain, but that was all just like an undercover thing. It was great. At this point in his life, Calderon has... I don't know if they're... I don't think they're married, but he has a boyfriend. He and his boyfriend have an, adopt, an adopted daughter who was a metahuman on Earth that they, they took in. And, again, he's the new Aquaman. He, was, he, he works directly with Arthur Curry, the former Aquaman. And, like, even at this point in his life... Like, this arc is about like, getting him to a point where he can relax for a little bit. A lot of season four of Young Justice is about, like, self-help and, like, your mental stability and all that good stuff and how important it is to preserve that stuff. Um, and if you didn't see it with the previous arcs, you definitely see it with this one because, like, like Calderon, by the end of it, is like, you know, you as the audience want him to take a sit, like, take a seat and, and chill out for a while, because um, he's always been working and working, and, and, like, you learn so much about his past and his family, um, and again, he has to kind of carry this arc along with this politics stuff, and it, it's done well, um, there's a lot about this arc, I, I know when this arc, like, happened, the wrong people, like, got upset about it, uh, for a couple reasons, basically, 
Calderon is the show's most prominent, like, gay character. He has a boyfriend. Along with that, in this arc, they reintroduce Lagoon Boy, who first, who first showed up in Season 2. But when he shows up in this season, he has a boyfriend, or I guess a, a wife and a husband. Lagoon Boy is part of this three-way um, polynamorous relationship. Or poly... polymerous? Polynamorous? It's a three-way relationship. And, like, listen. Like I said, the wrong people got upset about this, but... A really good point I saw online is, like, there was someone complaining that there was, like, someone complained that, like, the addition of Aquaman and her, or Aquaman and his relationship with his boyfriend, and the inclusion of Lagoon Boy and his three-way relationship, um, didn't add anything to the story and didn't need to be included or focused on. And the point I saw made that was, like, really excellent was, like, isn't that the point, though? that we're trying to normalize same-sex same relationships, we're trying to normalize, you know, these poly relationships. So many elements of season four of Young Justice, yeah, they bring attention to some of these more modern um, aspects of society without focusing on them, but that's the point. We're trying to normalize them. We're, we're saying that, like, yes, Aquaman is gay, moving on. That's just part of who he is. And... It's not like the stories of the season are necessarily about stuff like that, but it's it's included because it's just it's part of the world and it's part of the world now. Young Justice has done such a good job at reflecting that, and over time, being able to see these characters like change like like when the show started, like it's not like in season one Aquaman or Aqualad was gay, right? Like he he had romantic feelings for a female character. There was another female character that kissed him on New Year's Eve. They don't talk about that. It's not reflected anywhere else because, uh, you know, he learned he was gay, you know? I just think it's it's done really well. And I think that the, the Atlantis arc, I will say, it does dip a little bit because <laughs> it's underwater. It, it dips a little bit because there's more focus on the Vandal Savage stuff. And, you know, you kind of get this history of how Atlantis came to be. Um, the whole arc has a lot to do with the history of Atlantis and how destiny and how, you know, uh, there's like a prophecy. I don't know. Those are the elements I'm not super into. But in terms of character stuff, the Atlantis arc does a great job at, like, bringing a new, like, not direction, I don't know, a, a new perspective on Calderon as a character and, and what he has to deal with in his line of work. Um, the next arc is about the New Gods. This is really smart, right? Because this arc focuses on uh, Ra Raquel Irvin, Ir Irving, Ir Irvin, Raquel Irvin, uh, aka the superhero Rocket. She is voiced by Denise Bote. <laughs> That's how you say it. Um, this is a character who showed up in like towards the end of season one, and Rocket is an interesting case, right? Because she in the comics was from the Milestone comics, so the Milestone imprint which is kind of like a, an off-branch of DC Comics. It's the same universe that Static came from. But like Static, Rocket and the rest of the Milestone characters were eventually folded into the DC universe. And in this show, it, it's really funny, right? Because the rights to Static Shock are kind of in a weird limbo. And Static has appeared in Young Justice, but to limited amounts. 
Whereas Rocket, another milestone character, has appeared way more, has been much more of a main character kind of, you know, presence. And it's interesting because I thought, okay, the Rocket arc is probably going to be the most difficult because I don't know how much milestone stuff that Young Justice can use. And the way they get around that is by letting Rocket be the main character in the New Gods arc. And New Gods have been kind of referenced here and there in the show. Darkseid has made an appearance in the show. Like, more Darkseid-related characters have shown up than New Gods, necessarily. But this arc introduces Orion and Highfather and, and all the stuff on, on New Genesis that's kind of integral to the New Gods story. And that's the dog. But yeah, this arc is, you know, it's about Rocket, it's about the New Gods, it's about politics, um... They tie in a bit of, like, the Green, Lan Green Lantern Corps in this arc. They also establish uh, that Rocket's son, um, what's the word? He's autistic. And again, it's, like, not something that's super focused on, but it's something that, that Rocket is, you know, getting adjusted to. And they kind of reflect it. They reflect uh, her son's behavior with Orion's behavior and... They just do a smart way of, of connecting those dots, and it's 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 more that it's more than what Rocket is gonna get for a while. Because again, in terms of milestone characters, like she's she's a milestone character, and if you're a milestone character and your name's not static, you're not gonna get a lot to do for a while. <laughs> um, this arc is also interesting because it like okay, there was this 2011 Green Lantern show that was on around the same time as Young Justice, but it was a CGI show about Hal Jordan, the Green Lantern, and he went on these adventures with his friend Kilowog and um, a Red Lantern named Razor, who was an original character created for that show. In this arc of Young Justice, they basically canonize that show in the University of Young Justice, which I guess works because the Green Lantern core couldn't be further from, like, the Young Justice or Teen Titans cast of characters than, like, anyone else. Like, Young Justice had barely established anything to do with the Green Lantern core, and the Green Lantern show was only about Green Lantern stuff. So that works. Um, but, but, like, Razor shows up, and he has this whole, like, back and forth with Kilowog. Like, it's, it's basically canonized that that CG show is part of this universe, which I thought was really cool. It was kind of weird, like, kind of came out of nowhere, but, like, really cool that they are kind of willing to tie in these other shows into this universe. I thought that was done really well. Um, but, yeah, the New Gods arc is pretty fun. Um, in that arc, the original Flash, Jay Garrick, is, like, part of it, and he's, like, a hun he's like 102, which is, like, awesome. Um, but, yeah, good arc. Um, it also establishes, like, he might have shown up before, but it really establishes another main villain of the season named Lorzod. So Lorzod is something we haven't talked about yet. Lorzod is the son of General Zod, and I think her name's Ursa. He Lorzod is from the future, because part of this season is also the Legion of Superheroes, who are these three superheroes from the far future. And they reveal, I think they tell Superman, and they, then they tell Kid Flash. But the Legion of Superheroes are these time-traveling superheroes who come to, back to the past, because in their timeline, they eventually release General Zod and the Kryptonians from the Phantom Zone. And 
General Zod takes over the universe. <laughs> and when Lord Zod becomes like a young adult, Lord Zod uses a time machine to go back in time to try to like make it so Lord make it so that the Zods take over the universe faster. Like he's trying he General Zod already won, right? But General Zod's son is like, but we could win sooner though. Um and so Lord Zod is messing with, with like the present day. The Legion of Superheroes are stuck in the present day. Um and it's just an element of the show that like it sounds confusing, but once you kind of see it in execution, it's actually really neat. <laughs> it's actually really cool that they tied in the Legion of Superheroes, the Phantom Zone, General Zod, um, like, even the New Gods to an extent. There's so much stuff in Season 4 that kind of directly ties to the Superman, like, corner of the DC Universe. Um, which, again, for DC, that's really impressive because it's Superman and not Batman. Um, but yeah, the New Gods arc is pretty good, and then the sort of final arc, uh, it ties everything together, right? Like, stuff starts actually happening. Um, <laughs> stuff starts happening by, by the, 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 the final arc. Um, basically, every, everyone in, like, the Sabir community is, is starting to figure out what's been happening. Um, Lorzod is trying to open the Phantom Zone so he can get his father and the rest of the Kryptonians out. Uh, Nightwing has finally been recruited by, like, Artemis and the other heroes to help in the investigation. Because, like, Zatanna got a vision that Superboy was still alive, so Nightwing helped her investigate. Nightwing is sort of the central character of this arc. The problem is that it joins everyone together, so it's not really about Nightwing, but he's, he's there now. Um, but Dick Grayson, Nightwing is voiced by Jesse McCartney. Yes, the Jesse McCartney you're thinking of. Um, he's awesome. And, yeah, the, Nightwing and his team try to go in the Phantom Zone to get Superboy back. Um, at the same time, Miss Martian's evil brother has also teamed up with Lorzod. Um, and the two of them are trying to, you know, get the Kryptonians out. Um... What else What else happens? Superboy is still brainwashed. Um, the religion of superheroes characters like basically just bite the bullet and, and recruit the help of the other superheroes because the future's already in danger, so, you know... Because they tried to be really cloak and dagger about it so as not to mess with the timeline, but the timeline's already fucked up because of Lorzod. It's a whole thing. But, like, other characters like... Um, uh, the Red Martian from the first arc joins in, Orion from the New Gods arc, he joins in, um, you know, there's definitely elements here that, that play into what's happening, um, and yeah, the, the final arc is just about, like, like, General Zod and his Krypton, not his, all his Kryptonians, a couple of them, his wife and, like, two of them, they get to Earth, they defeat Superman, it kind of comes down to, like, where Connor Kent's loyalty lies, and of course, you know, spoilers, Connor chooses to, you know, not kill Superman. There's a bit where Miss Martian gives Connor his memories back, and so Connor's back on the good side, which is good. I was really worried the season was going to end with him still being an amnesiac, but thankfully, the season ends on him and, and Miss Martian actually getting married. It's it's terrific. Again, I just watched it yesterday. I definitely cried when they got married. It was great. <laughs> but yeah, the... It's 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 impressive because like the final arc is like there are some things that aren't brought up 
that happened in previous arcs, but so many elements are tied together so well that it really feels like, you know, it was well planned. Okay, we're going to shotgun some reoccurring characters real quick who are also in the show. I didn't write down their name actors or their voice actors, but they still have a big part to play in the show, so I want to talk about them really quick. Um, so Saturn Girl, Chameleon Boy, and Phantom Girl are members of the Legion of Superheroes. They're the ones that come from the future to the present. Um, what I like about them is that, without meaning to, I think they sort of imply that all three of them are a direct result of Martians, because all the Legion of Superheroes in the far future are, like, humans intermingling with aliens, which creates these new races of beings. So all three of these characters are technically part human, but they also come from their own alien race that intermingled with humans. So, like, I think they sort of imply here, because that's definitely what I got from it, is, like, when you think of the Martians in, like, DC Universe, Martians are capable of telepathy, which is Saturn Girl's power, they can shapeshift, which is Chameleon Boy's power, and they can phase through solid objects, which is Phantom Girl's power. Um, so I just think that's really cool. Um, Beast Boy plays a big part in this show. Um, I gotta tell you, like, again, he... So Beast Boy is, by, is voiced by Greg Sipes in, like, almost everything. It's awesome that Greg Sipes gets to voice Beast Boy here, because, again, the original Teen Titans show ended a while back. We only have Teen Titans Go right now. Um, and Greg Sipes voices Beast Boy in that, but it's like, it's, it's gotta be cool because Sipes gets to voice Beast Boy in a comedy show where he gets to be silly and goofy and dumb, and he gets to voice him in this very dramatic, action-focused show where, in this season, Beast Boy goes through PTSD something hard, right? Because he's on Mars. In this show, he's kind of like Miss Martian's, uh, adopted brother, he goes through this thing where, because Superboy dies, in quotations, Beast Boy relates that back to everyone who's ever died in his life. His mother, his adopted parents, um, his friend Wally West, like, he relates it back to that, and he goes hard into, like, medication, like, sleeping meds and stuff, um, or antidepressants, sorry. He goes hard into antidepressants, he starts shirking his responsibilities as a superhero, he loses all of his acting jobs... Like, he can't act anymore because he's, he's just shitty now. Um, you know, he's essentially kicked off the superhero team that he created because he can't be a leader and he can't... Like, even when he's off-duty, he can't, like, do chores around the house, basically. Um, he's getting cu cut off on all ends to the point where he's even trying to lie to his therapist in order to get, like, everything back to him, you know? And by the end of it, don't worry, because, like, that's the thing, right? A lot of people complain that so much of this season was Beast Boy, like, just going through it, just having a hard time, just down the dumps, like, breaking all his relationships, making people cry. Like, they try to, they try to give him an intervention, and, like, he breaks the hearts of so many of his friends and loved ones. Um, he breaks up with, like, his girlfriend, who already has a lot on her plate. But by the end of it, he starts, like, after that therapy session where he lies to his therapist, and his, ther his therapist is Black Canary, by the way, um, like, they actually get to a breakthrough, and Beast Boy accepts that he needs help, and he gets, like, a support animal, which is, like, a corgi, which is fun, because he can turn into a corgi, too, and they can play together, but, um, like, it doesn't, he doesn't get a complete happy ending, his girlfriend still, you know, doesn't want to be with him, he's not doing superhero work just yet, but, He's being a little bit more public and a little bit more outspoken about how superheroes need 
support and they need like mental help, mental health help. Like every superhero goes through PTSD in their own way and more should be done for the people that kind of put their lives on the line, which is like, again, it's a fantasy story, but it's, it's true. Like so many people whose job it is to protect other people end up having PTSD and they end up having survivor's guilt and seeing it done through Beast Boy, who is usually a comedic character is so effective because you know Beast Boy as a character has so much love and compassion and friendliness in his soul. So to see him in that low of a place and so down the dumps is jarring and it makes it more noticeable what the effects of PTSD can do to somebody. Um, another character they focus on is Halo. Halo was introduced back in Season 3. Again, a bit complicated with her, but essentially in this season, she discovers that essentially... Her body isn't her body. They established that in Season 3. Her body is not her body. It's the body of someone else. And Halo is sort of a new identity in the body. And she is trying to understand if, you know... She wears a hijab because she's uh, Arabic. Or, I think, Muslim? I think she's Muslim. But she has to kind of accept, like, well, do I want to be Muslim? Or is it more a thing of who I used to be? Like, she is deciding what her relationship with religion is. She's deciding what her relationship with sexuality is because she's also, she's also deciding, and I keep saying she when I, I shouldn't be, Halo decides, or accepts, comes to the conclusion that they are non-binary. They are neither male or female. Even if the body they are in is, is female presenting, they do not identify as a gender. Um... They choose not to be religious, I guess. Um, and they also choose to pursue a relationship with a character named Harper Rowe, um, who is a uh, a gay teenage girl. So, in Season 3, they establish Halo as like a new superhero character, uh, all this complicated lore with new gods and stuff. Um, and, and, and in Season 3, she had a relationship with... Uh, Geoforce is a male character that we're going to talk about in a minute. But in this season, it's very much about who Halo wants to be as their own person. Um, hold on. Sorry. Phone went off for a minute there. Uh, then there is Geoforce. His name is Brion. Uh, he is the prince slash king slash new ruler of the country of Markovia. Again, they established him in season three. By the end of season three, he makes like he's a he's a pretty heroic character up until the end of season three, where he makes this huge like turn heel turn, and like he kills some villains. He goes back to Markovia. He kind of cuts his ties with the Young Justice team. He also cuts ties with Halo, who you know they were in a relationship. We briefly see him in this season, and it's very clear that he's being manipulated by the like other political leaders of Markovia. And it's kind of, it's shown that his advisor has the power to manipulate people through touch. So, like, Brion will start having, like, second thoughts about what his people are doing. Because they essentially, Markovia is welcoming in metahumans who have powers and then turning them into soldiers. And he's starting to have second thoughts about it. Maybe it's not, like, a lot of it is, like, propaganda, um, you know... You know, they're saying we're making a, a nation of superheroes, but in actuality, we're making a, a, a nation of weapons. It's a whole front. Um, 
And as soon as he starts questioning things or seeing things differently, his advisor comes up, pats him on the shoulder, and suddenly Brion is back on the program. It's really, like, dark in that aspect. Um, Malifa Ak is a, Marsh, is a white Martian villain. He is Miss Martian's brother in the show. And, dude, Miss Martian gives him every chance to turn things around, and this dude just keeps messing it up. Um, Malifa Ak is just a reoccurring villain who is kind of dead set in his, like, short-sighted views. Um, he wants white Martian superiority and will do anything to get it even if it means killing his sister's uh, fiancé. But he makes it through the whole show, and I will say, for as shitty as a character as he is, um, it's impressive that they got so much out of a character who, like, Malifa Ock in the comics is, like, Martian Manhunter's only good villain. And even then, like, he's not around that often. So for this show to kind of redefine what Malifa Ock is and actually, like, make a point with his character is awesome. I think he's a really good villain in the show. Um, again, Vandal Savage, another reoccurring villain. He doesn't do anything. <laughs> he just kind of talks and is talked to and thinks about the past. I imagine he'll do more going forward. He's done more in past seasons. He's not my favorite character, but clearly he's a central point for, for Young Justice. And it, it's probably because he's been around since, like, the Stone Age. So he... They explain that Vandal Savage played a big part in the creation of metahumans, um, the creation of Atlantis. Like, everything kind of comes back to involving him, which is interesting, I guess. Um, Darkseid is briefly in the show. He doesn't do anything. He says things. People say things to him. We'll see where that goes. They def they're definitely setting up for Darkseid and Apocalypse playing more of a part in, like, the next season. Um, again, General Zod, his son Lor Zod, and his wife Ursa are more main villains in the show. General Zod has done pretty well in the show, I think. Uh, I like this version of him. His wife Ursa actually ends up getting this artifact from the future, which turns her into a villain called the em the Emerald Empress. She actually, like, not, not to say other people die, but like, she makes it to the end of the show. She escapes by the end of the show. Um... And it's cool because the Emerald Empress is a villain of the Legion of Superheroes. So it's like we're setting up the origin of this villain who will plague the Legion way far into the future. She's cool, I guess. Um, we Of course, Superman's in the show. <laughs> of course he is. A lot of this stuff has to do with him. Um, and he's done well. In this show, they established that, or in this season, they established that Superman and Lois have a son named John. I think he's like four or five. Um, and, like, when when Connor Kent, quote-unquote, dies, there's this great scene where Superman sits down with his son and explains what death is. And it's impactful, it's, it's heart-pulling, um, and it's just done really well. I'm really glad that this show gives a lot of respect to Superman. He's not perfect, which I think is really important. He, you know, not to say he's gullible, but, like, he gives people the benefit of the doubt. He's kind of goofy, but I kind of like that, too. Like... Superman is, is portrayed really well in this show. Um, Bart Allen, Kid Flash. There's not a lot of character stuff with him, but he does help the Legion of Superheroes, so he is involved. Uh, we talked about Clarion a little earlier. Um, he's just a little shit. <laughs> he's, he's a little brat, but he has the power of a god, so that's fun. Um, in Season 3, they introduce Forager, who's a bug person from um, New Genesis. In this season we meet another Forager, which because of their species or whatever, they all refer to themselves as Foragers. 
this new for, Forager, Forager 2, um, is a female bug person who falls in love with Forager 1, and just because it happens, um, one of the other Green Lanterns ends up dying, and his ring goes to Forager 2. So the new gods get a Green Lantern representative, but it's a bug person. It's not a new god, and so that kind of changes, not the power dynamic, but it changes the perspective on Changes the perspective that the new gods have of the bug people. Now that one of them is a Green Lantern, it, it, it kind of opens their eyes a little bit. <clears throat> you know, we talked about how the characters from the Green Lantern animated series are in this. Um, Metron is a time-traveling new god who plays a big part in this. Orion is in this, like that. Um, so they introduced this thing, it, I think it's a new concept called the Kaiser Thrall. It's this portal-opening, like, science cube, and, like... At first, it seems to be a weapon, but then you learn that it actually has the psychic consciousness of some kid named Danny that was stolen off of Earth in, like, season two. And, like, his mind, his brain is literally inside this box, and it's super dark and fucked up. Um, but don't worry, they save Danny, and, and Danny, he's, he's still a box, but now he gets to be with the superheroes, and maybe they'll fix him eventually. Shit, that was really messed up, what they did with Danny. Um, and then there's the bio ships. They're basically just these like, pieces of Martian technology that are sentient. They're like, if, they're like animals. They're like if your dog could turn into a spaceship. Um, but there's two of them, because there's, there's the original Bioship, and then original Bioship has a baby that they just call baby. It, it's fine. They're in the show, too. They help. Okay. Now that we're done with all 60 characters that are in this show, um, let's talk about some notes that I have, just stuff that maybe I didn't cover yet. Um, I really enjoy the mature themes that are explored. I kind of mentioned that already, but, uh, the themes of politics, uh, law and order, nationality, religion, uh, self-discovery, love, PTSD, and, uh, family connections. Those are all super strong, uh, elements to the season. Uh, I enjoy the norm normalization of, uh, you know, alternative couples and alternative families. I think that's really good. Um, I love the world building between Mars, Atlantis. Uh, I wish... I wish uh, New Genesis maybe got a little bit more. Uh, for the most part, we just kind of meet like four or five um, New Genesis characters outside of the bugs that live on like, you know, the, the underworld or whatever. Um, there's a lot of time travel in this season, but fortunately it's not very... I mean, confusing isn't the right word because it, it a lot of people are touch and go about time travel, but in this it's pretty concise. And the way they kind of tie the time travel loop is really good, too. Um, mainly with, like... Again, I don't want to spoil it, but <laughs> but Lord Zod gets... Uh, he gets his comeuppance through the means of time travel, and it's just really clever, and it's actually really satisfying when it happens. Um, again, I, I like the focus on so many elements from, like, Superman comics. I think that's really good. There's really not... I mean, other than, like, Superman and Lois, I guess, you know, it's it's always good to see more focus on Superman stuff because it, sometimes it feels like DC forgets they have Superman stuff. Um, let's see. I, again, sort of disappointed with Vandal Savage. It really just feels like he's, there's a lot of standing and talking and not a lot of him actually doing anything. I mean, I guess he is manipulating things. There is the inclusion of... Uh, he has, like, children that have... Um, some weight in the plot, so that's that, that counts for something. Uh, interesting that they brought the CG Green Lantern show into the 
the canon of Young Justice. I'm curious to see in the future if they ever do that again. Um, honestly, given how the show ends, there, there was a Legion of Superheroes cartoon from the mid-2000s that, honestly, they could just tie into the continuity. The only issue there is that Superman doesn't know who the Legion of Superheroes are, but, I don't know, time travel, memory wipe, I mean, one of the Legionnaires is a telepath, so she easily could have just wiped his mind. I don't know. It, it just really rang true to me, just because towards the end of the season, there's a character from the Legion of Superheroes that shows up to pick up the other three, um, who visually and kind of vocally sounds a lot like his depiction in that mid-2000s Legion of Superheroes show. Um, which I should really give a rewatch, because Legion is super underrated in comic books. Uh, again, I cried over all the wedding stuff. <laughs> That's all my notes. That's good. I, was, I managed to kind of talk about all the big points through talking about the characters. Um, now we can get into the future of the show, because, again, if this, if this was the last season of Young Justice, that'd be fine. I think it ended on a really good note. But there are a couple of open doors that I think Greg Wiseman and company are going to want to explore. So, um, I think for season five, they should do this kind of arc-based storytelling again. I think it worked out really well. Um, I don't know if the arcs would be based around the core Young Justice team, or maybe, you know, the sort of different corners of the DC pantheon of characters. I would lean more on the latter, because that way you can kind of tell the stories about whatever characters you want to, um, while also exploring stuff like magic and space and, and, uh, street-level crime and all that. So, you know, like, you, you can explore different avenues. Um, I don't know, maybe the arcs can be based around new characters or characters on the Young Justice team that are, like, the next generation down. I don't know. The show is mainly about, like, Nightwing's generation of superheroes, so... I, I, I would posit it would probably just be about... It would be the same kind of format, which I'd be fine with. I like the arc-based storytelling. Um, season... I can't remember if John Kent was born in season... Th I think he was born between season 3 and 4, but I could be wrong. I think he might have been born during season 3. But um, this season, along with season 3, sets up John Kent, the son of Superman, uh, who eventually becomes Superboy in the comics. And I think currently he is Superman. Um, but it sets up him, and season 4 specifically sets up Damian Wayne, the son of Batman and Talia al Ghul. Which is really exciting, because that's, you know, those are the Super Sons, uh, Superboy and Robin. They had a book uh, a couple years back. It was, a good, it was a good era for DC when Super Sons was, uh, was being published. But, you know, based on, I think Damien in this universe is a newborn. And John is seemingly like four or five. But, I don't know. It's kind of hard to tell with, like, Kryptonian children, because he might just be, like, smarter because he's a Kryptonian. But... It would actually be kind of... Actually, it would, it would almost work out to what it is now. Because I was going to say, with Damien being newly born in the Young Justice universe, and John being, like, between the ages of, like, uh, I don't know, four and six, like, w when they first appear in the comics as the Super Sons, as, like, a team, uh, Robin was, I think, 13, and Damien... Or, sorry. Yeah, Robin was 13, and John was, like, 11. So in this, their ages would be kind of reversed. I don't know. It's kind of in the middle of what the Super Sons were and what the situation is now because John's age has been tampered with in the comics. So John Kent is like 18 and Damien's probably like 14. 
But, um, I don't know. They're, they're still, like, a close enough distance that we could just get, like, Robin and Superboy in, like... The, like it depends on how far the next season goes. Because if, if they jump ten years, we're kind of guaranteed Robin and Superboy. Um, but I would almost have more respect for Greg Wiseman and his team if they kind of paced it out a little bit more. Instead of just jumping right into that, maybe give it another season or two seasons before they make, you know... Superboy and Robin a thing, um, especially since we already we can still have a Robin in the current Young Justice universe, and it's Tim Drake. So I don't know. I, I don't know what they're gonna do with that. I just know that John and Damian were set up in like this season and last season, so it's always a possibility. Plus, there's many other characters. Um, I think Aquaman and Mera have a daughter. Um, uh, I'm trying to remember the fact. Like if I'm trying to think specifically of like super children, but it's slipping my mind right now. Um, also set up in this season is Jason Todd. So in the Young Justice universe, during like the five year time jump between season one and two, Jason Todd was Robin and had died. I, I think the Joker was the one that killed him, but I don't know if they ever specify that. Um, but Jason Todd is dead, um, and like they kind of briefly talk about that. I think in season two. But here in season four, during the assassin arc, you see with Rachel Ghoul, with Talia, with baby Damien, you see this like red cloaked, like young man. And because it's like a red hood, and he's very clearly like a, a his his identity is clearly obscured, there's the indication that that's Jason Todd and that the Yao Ghoul family brought him back with the Lazarus Pits. I'm waiting for that shoe to drop, because when I saw Red Hood, I was like, oh, that's interesting. Like, a more kind of assassin, ninja-aligned Red Hood, and one who is working for Ra's al Ghul. And I think, I think Ra's al Ghul isn't working with the bad guys anymore. I think he's out for himself right now. So, I don't know. It, I, it, it's there. You know what I mean? Like, the potential of Red Hood is there. Him reappearing, especially now, like, in the Young Justice universe would be really interesting, especially because of another character they introduce at the end of Season 4, like, after all the credits. The stinger for Season 4 is Supergirl, Kara Zor-El, um, the cousin of Superman, who, I don't know, maybe they'll change her origin, but in this show, they reveal, okay, because part of the plot is that by the end of it, Darkseid gets his hands on a bunch of Kryptonians, and one of them is Kara. So, Kara Zarels appears to be working for Darkseid as one of his, like, female Furies. And along with her is, um, Mary Marvel, who's a member of the Shazam family, I think I mentioned her earlier. Um, and Big Barda, who's one of the main, like, New Gods characters that people recognize. So, that would seem to imply that the New Gods and Darkseid are gonna have a bit more of a presence in Season 5. And... It indicates that now we're getting Supergirl in the Young Justice universe, which is funny because I never even thought about the fact that Supergirl was missing. But definitely in recent years, Supergirl's like profile has gone up a bit more. So now would be a, a good time to introduce her, especially if she's being introduced as like a brainwashed minion of Darkseid because it gives Superboy kind of a new plot. Like and when, I, when I say Superboy, I mean Connor Kent. It means we could see Connor have to be the one to bring Supergirl out of her brainwashing, which would be poetic because when they introduced Connor Kent in the first season, I think in like episode one of Young Justice, he is brainwashed. So it kind of comes full circle. I think that'd be really cool. Um, 
And it also indicates that we're not done talking about Kryptonians, which I think is just incredible. Um, but yeah, Supergirl, uh, Mary Marvel. So, so the Supergirl thing would kind of imply we're going to talk more about Kryptonians and the Superman family. But it's also important that Mary Marvel is included in that too as, again, another minion of Darkseid. Because it means we get more Shazam family stuff. And I think Black Adam has shown up in Young Justice, but he hasn't been as big a deal as he probably should be. And I think in the wake of the Black Adam movie and, you know, Shazam 2 eventually coming out, Greg Wiseman might have a bit more story to tell with the Shazam family. It's funny, too, because I don't think throughout the entirety of Season 6, Billy Bats and Shazam does anything. He shows up once, but, like, he doesn't do anything in the story. Despite the fact that his, uh, I think it's his sister, Mary Marvel, has, like, a pretty big plot during the magic arc. There's this whole thing about her almost having, like, an addiction to using her magic powers. Um, so I'm wondering if we're going to see more from that. Like, maybe if there's other members of the Shazam family that we haven't been introduced to yet. Um, but we'll see about that. Uh, again, I mentioned Big Barda was introduced. You don't get Big Barda without Mr. Miracle, who is an amazing character. Tom King definitely raised that guy's profile as well. So maybe we'll see him in uh, Season 5 of Young Justice. That'd be cool. His deal is that he can escape any trap. So, like... And, and like, the cool part is the characters that are sort of involved with Big Barda and Mr. Miracle's origins have already appeared in Young Justice. So it's not too far, you know, of a toss to be like, oh, maybe these characters will show up. They're, people already know... The characters already know who is responsible for creating characters like Big Barda and Mr. Miracle. So I don't think it's out of the question. Um, I don't know if this is going to go anywhere, but Mera is in charge of Atlantis right now. Like, uh, the role of Aquaman is shared between Lagoon Boy, Calderon, and Arthur. And Mera is kind of the king-slash-queen of Atlantis. She's, like, ruling Atlantis now. Um, which is cool. They've definitely, especially in the Atlantis arc, they've done, like, fake-outs with, like, f f clone versions of characters like Aquaman's brother and, uh... The, like, progenitor of all Atlanteans was a clone that they introduced there. So, I can totally see a thing where Atlantis might... Because this is going to sound dumb, but it's a comic book thing. Mera has a twin sister named Siren, uh, who is a villain. So, they could either do that, just have Mera get, like, kidnapped, taken off the board, replaced by her twin sister, who's all disguised and stuff... Um, they even have magical charms for disguises in this universe. Or, again, they might just clone Mera and her clone is the Young Justice version of, of, uh, of Siren. Um, whatever they end up doing, I think, you know, shifting control of Atlantis to Mera, um, you know, it, it could set up a potential story where Atlantis falls under the control of evil forces. We could see Calderon's loyalty kind of tested again, the same way it was tested in Season 2 between his father, Black Manta, and his, like, fellow superheroes. Um, and that might also be interesting because we haven't seen anything from Themyscira in the Young Justice universe. Like, Wonder Woman is a character. She has a voice actress. There, there are multiple Wonder Girls, right? But we don't know much about Themyscira in the Young Justice universe. And I don't think in the show they've really gone there or talked about it. Um, I think season five could be a really good time to introduce that, especially if we're introducing Supergirl, who herself ends up training on Themyscira in the comic books. 
Um, it might also be good because <laughs> on the Mascara, they, they have their own Artemis, which is funny because we already have Artemis in the Young Justice team, so we get two Artemises. That, that's fun. Um, but the main thing I was thinking is you introduce Themyscira, you do some sort of twist with Atlantis being ruled by a, like, uh, an imposter Mera, and you kind of do a cleaner version of what happens in Flashpoint, where the Atlanteans and the Amazonians go to war or something, and Earth is caught in the middle. I think that could be a thing, but it might be a bit too much. It really depends on what the story is going to be. It could be that. It could be Darkseid finally invades with, like, Supergirl and his, and his new superhero minions. Um, if they do the Themyscira stuff, they could in introduce Yara Flor. Yara Flor is, like, um, a new Brazilian Am Amazonian who, she's in the comics right now. I think she, I think she's a Wonder Girl, but she might also be a Wonder Woman. Point is, she's a new Wonder Woman, Wonder Woman character who is getting a lot of attention. She's supposedly getting her own show, but that might not be happening. Um, but it might be a good time to introduce her, especially because we're this many seasons in we need to do something with, like, Wonder Woman. <laughs> like, again, the Batman stuff is obvious. The Superman stuff we've covered, you know, mostly in this season. I think they should do more with Wonder Woman and her, and her like, array of characters, like Cheetah, Giganta, Cersei, all those characters. Um, but yeah, like I mentioned, it could be Atlantis attacks, it could be Themyscira attacks, it could be uh, Apocalypse attacks. Another possible thing that they could do is Markovia attacking? As I mentioned before, Markovia's leader, Geoforce, is totally brainwashed by his advisor. Um, and it really feels like that shoe will drop eventually. But it's like, it's like we could get Markovia as like a world war situation, like World War Three, which, I mean, was another thing in the comics. Um, only Black Adam caused that, I think. Or we could just get, again, alien invasion... Themyscira invasion, Atlanteans, whatever. Um, what I'm saying is there's a lot of potential for war in this universe. Um, I'm wondering if Season 5 might be too early to reveal... Because the idea is that Superboy kind of inspires the creation of the Legion of Superheroes in the future. I'm wondering how far out in the future that's going to happen. I'm, I'm, I'm assuming they're not going to cover it anytime soon. Because the Legion are from like the really far future. But, I don't know. They set up that plot thread, which I think is interesting. Um, and in fact, the creation of the Legion of Superheroes might already be set up because we're seeing more involvement between the Le the Justice League, the Green Lantern Corps, and the New Gods, which I think are probably the three elements that eventually evolve into the Legion of Superheroes. Um, the last thing in terms of, like, the future that we could potentially see, there are a couple characters relevant to Young Justice and Teen Titans that are still missing from this show, surprisingly. We haven't seen Starfire. We haven't seen Raven. There is another Aqua Girl named Lorena. And oddly enough, there's a character called Blue Devil who plays a bit part in Season 4. He gets a sidekick named Kid Devil who later becomes Red Devil. Um, so those are all possible things we could be seeing in Season 5 whenever that happens. I really hope this show gets a bit more of a budget, gets a bit more attention because it's really good. If if an hour and a half of me selling it to you isn't enough, go watch, like, the first two or three episodes of Young Justice, and I think you're not going to walk away upset about it. I think you might be hooked like I was. Um, but, yeah, this whole podcast was 
really just me singing the praises of a show that I've loved for a long time. And I really hope me talking about it has sold you on it, or you at least found it entertaining. Um, as always, you can follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. And I'll catch you guys next time. Goodbye.